Hello and welcome to this very special podcast brought to you by the team at Sagentia. In these shows, we'll celebrate, we'll explore, and we'll get to understand all things innovation, smart thinking, and future leadership in business. I'm glad you could be there. My name is Tom Idol, and I'm your host. Now, from these podcasts, as ever, we want you to walk away with a much better understanding of a new idea in business. We want you to gain insight and knowledge that you might not have had before so that you can be inspired. So when you go back to your own businesses, you'll do things better and smarter. Now, as always, we'll jump into a brand new subject or topic of conversation each time, and we'll be meeting some of the people with good ideas, brilliant concepts, and exciting new ways of thinking about and solving some of the challenges that are common to us all in business. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. People are now starting to question the fragility of the food supply chain. So indoor farming you buy a huge warehouse somewhere let's say in Croydon you grow crops artificially using a lot of electricity Um, but you get that crop onto supermarket shelves 24 hours after they were harvested in the middle of winter rather than flying them in from Peru now is that more sustainable or is that less sustainable and is a consumer willing to pay more or less for that um, based on the fact that it was grown locally and the food miles are really low there's a, there's a whole burgeoning field growing, which is, as you say, called you know, precision agriculture. The, the, the ultimate ambition is robots going through the field. Certainly, at some point, the customer has to pay for it. So looking for solutions where something is both sustainable and increases productivity is, you know, the holy grail. And I think it is about that supply chain integrity. It's how you... How you control that and monitor that and understand where things have come from. I think, you know, certainly in the Western world, it's become more and more important to have that traceability. I think if you look on a, on a global perspective, perhaps less so. It's actually, there are more issues around, can I get enough food for myself, for, my, for the burgeoning populations that, that are growing around the world? Companies may find they lose access to core markets if they aren't making steps today. This time on the podcast, we're going to be discussing that behemoth of issues, our food system. With plenty more mouths to feed, there's going to be some 10 billion people on this planet by the middle of the century. How can we produce enough food to sustain us and the environment upon which we so heavily rely? The good news is our guests this time are confident we can succeed, offering plenty of great examples this time of how companies can make radical and sustainable changes in their food supply chains. Stay tuned. Food. It is such a big issue that we could dedicate many series of this podcast to the subject alone. It's a big issue because it affects every single one of us, including those of us that don't have enough to eat, as well as those of us that have too much to eat and are consuming all of the wrong things. But it's a fascinating subject because right now our food system is under threat. And that's mainly because of the world's population is exploding. By 2050, we'll have 10 billion people to feed here on planet Earth. That's about 3 billion more mouths to feed than there were in 2010. So there's a real job on to produce much more food, to waste less food and to distribute it much more efficiently and effectively and fairly, I guess. In fact, the World Resources Institute says that there's a 56% food gap between what we currently produce now and what will be needed. And that will demand almost 600 million more hectares of land And that's before we even mention the many more greenhouse gas emissions that this expanded agricultural sector will pump into the atmosphere by the middle of the century. And of course, changes brought about by climate change, erratic weather patterns, increased droughts and floods and increasingly poor soil quality are really taking their toll on farmers who are finding it really hard to produce more and more food. I travelled to Cambridge, to the home of Sagentia, to meet two men on a mission to help companies tackle the sustainable food challenge head-on, from farm to fork. 
Simon Norman is a technology consultant who joined the business seven years ago and now spends his time engaged with food and drinks companies, big and small. Alan James is Sagentia's chief technology officer. He's been with the firm for 20 years and now leads on projects in developing agricultural technology solutions. I kicked off our conversation by asking Simon what he sees as being the big food challenges right now. Climate change is coming down the line and from a from a food production standpoint that means you know will we be able to grow the crops that we will need to grow in in the regions in the uh, geographies that we currently grow them or that we'd like to grow them you know what how much water is there going to be in order to actually um, feed feed the wheat fields feed the corn fields and um, can we get by with you know those staple crops um, or how do we make sure that we keep the diversity of food production uh, stable um, you know as you as you look at things that have we've learned a little bit more of, uh, or at least as consumers we've all learned more about the food supply chain in the last year you're looking at uh, empty shelves in, in Tesco's and Asda as, as people panic bought I think um, people are now starting to question the fragility of the food supply chain and potentially you know there's a lack of trust there I think um, for, for a lot of big manufacturers there's been a lack of trust for a long time you know can we really believe what we read on a packet um, when somebody claims something is is fair trade or when something somebody claims something is uh, produced in an ethical manner you know as a consumer you're kind of reading that on the front of a packet and and hoping that that's true but maybe don't have a way of interrogating or understanding that um, and I think that's a really big problem for everyone involved in in food supply um, so yeah I, I think that the two biggest challenges I see them are uh, resilience in the face of what's going to happen over the next 50 years, um, regardless of what governments might do to try and stop that happening. But just a, a fundamental lack of trust, a, a breakdown in communications maybe between um, those who are producing food and those who are consuming it. And I think it is about that supply chain integrity. It's how you, how you control that and monitor that and understand where things have come from. I think, you know, certainly in the Western world, it's become more and more important to have that traceability. Mm. I think if you look on a, on a global perspective, perhaps less so. It's actually, there are more issues around, can I get enough food for myself, for, my, for the burgeoning populations that, that are growing around the world? And can we get, you know, can we transport things into the right place at the right time so things don't get, get you know, perish and go off? Um, it's, there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of, solutions out there that people are, are pushing but they seem to be predominantly focused at, at developed countries sure. um, the developing world is still is probably where the biggest problems come yeah yeah so let's zoom in a bit about one specific trend which is you these food manufacturers now taking a much more responsibility more ownership over uh, the way the materials or the ingredients that make up their products are actually grown and sourced now a trend that's been coming for you know the best part of ten years, I guess. But why do you think we're ha- we're seeing that? Why, what what sort of stimulated that? Do you think? I think for the majority of the time when we we have conversations with clients that are interested in this, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons, and you can you can sum it up in, in maybe three broad categories. You know, there, there's a there's a productivity or a, a cost kind of basis to it. Um, you know, ultimately, people that make um, snack food, people that make processed food, they, they need to drive their costs down because they're getting continual pressure from supermarkets, other, distribut- other distributors to you know, increase margins. So potentially, that's one of the big drivers. Um, but maybe counter to that, and maybe sometimes going hand in hand with that is, is a real focus on the sustainability of what's going on. You know, sustainability is huge in the mind of the consumer and ultimately this is a consumer driven business so helping uh, companies achieve those sustainability goals um, it's not just about packaging anymore Um, people really care about um, transparency and trust i think taking responsibility or or protecting against future variation um you know particularly i think as as well you know it goes hand in hand with some of these trends that our clients or, or food companies want to get into 
new ingredients, new markets, and, and deliver new benefits to consumers. And ultimately, that might mean they need to access an ingredient or a uh, an isolate or, or some sort of technology that's not being grown. It isn't a big cash crop. Um, and potentially, the only way you can get hold of that is to grow it yourself. Um, because if the supply chain isn't providing for you, you have to take you have to take some ownership of that as well. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess from my point of view, I'm thinking about it from the other end of that that chain. Think about it from the, the end of the, the, where the farmer sits. You know, and Simon talks about pressure with regards to cost, with, with regards to price, and clearly for farmers, that's that's critical. You know, they're pretty much at the end of that supply chain. So, if there's downward pressure on cost, they're the ones who actually take most of the pain of that. So for them, it's about, well, how do I increase the value of what I produce? How do I produce things that are most valuable? And it comes, it comes back to Simon's point about what niche things could I grow that the, that the, the food companies really need? Um, but it also comes to how do I make things in an, in an, as, an, in as an efficient manner as mm. possible? So economically efficient as well as you know, you know, environmentally efficient as well. And then that environmental perspective plays into, into the farmer's vision of sustainability. You know, for the farmer, he's, he or she is the custodian of the land. Yeah. You know, to them, it's making sure that I don't poison my, my fields, I don't you know, bleed nitrogen into, into the rivers. How do I do that? There's a regulatory requirement that I, that I don't do that. However, I'm a responsible person mm-hmm. and I want to you know, be handing my, my farm on as a going concern to, to the next generation. So for them, for them, sustainability actually can be quite different to what the food companies want. Yeah. So there's a little bit of tension there between the two. But I think with the, the food companies are increasingly seeing that if they want to meet their own sustainability goals, they have to work with those farmers to help the farmers meet sustainability goals. Mm-hmm. You know, you, people in here in the UK talk about sort of hedgerows and loss of hedgerows being a terrible thing for biodiversity um, in rural areas. Um, but that's a, a, a fact of life because farmers need to find a way of um, processing large areas you know, and, and removal of hedgerows in order to make two fields into one field means that when harvest comes along, it's a lot more efficient process and you're not wasting as much time and effort doing the harvest. So... Um, the food companies are increasingly having to respond to that by giving incentives back to the farmer. Um, you know, I'll pay you 10% more if you can give 10% of your land over to um, wildflower growth or, or, or whatever those sorts of back and forth might be. Um, and, and ultimately, as long as the consumer is willing to buy into that system, is willing to maybe take a little bit of extra cost on the end product, um, you know, it, hopefully it should be win-win. Yeah, but although I think there is a question about how much of that is really is really done. You know, you see a lot of the food companies on their packaging. You know, they've got lovely pictures of fields and flowers and, and things like that on their on their packaging, trying to show their their credentials. But actually, when it comes down to it, to a large degree, money drives it. There's, I need, you know, I'm not going to pay that much for that for that, that that bushel of corn. Yeah, I think certainly if you look at some of the the high value. Um, ingredients that are certainly imported into the eu um i'd say there's almost a complete lack of trust in consumers in in claims that people make um you know your coffees teas chocolate um we we hear all the time about scandals of um almost slave labor being used on these farms child labor being used on these plantations and it it seems such a difficult challenge as a consumer to read between the lines of you know, this chocolate company makes this claim and this chocolate company makes this claim. What's the comparison here? What's the, uh, which one is more ethical? Why does this one cost five pounds when this costs three? Is that because of the eth- uh, the ethical nature or is it because of a quality of ingredient or is it because of a processing thing? You know, how can I as a consumer justify that when really what I'm just looking for is a bit of chocolate? Um, and and really navigating that minefield is is almost impossible. And I think that's, you know, to a degree, that's the fault of some of the the big corporations here that uh, have, I won't say purposefully muddied the the, the waters, but certainly not made it clear and, and obvious what's going on. 
So, as we've heard so far, there's a clear need for big food companies to meet their own sustainability targets and build trust with their consumers. And increasingly, many businesses are extending their focus on the sustainability of their products further down the supply chain to help farmers overcome their production challenges and find efficiencies by producing more with less. But as Simon tells me, given that different companies have different definitions as to what constitutes a sustainable or sustainably sourced product, it's not always a simple journey. It's such a, a wide minefield to to try and put a life cycle analysis against a, a product which goes through as distributed a network as, as anything that, that, that you find on a supermarket shelf does is is almost impossible. So, you know, we, we talk a bit about indoor farming here. Um, I think it's hugely exciting. I think it's a really interesting way of, of changing up the, the economics of the food um, system. But is it more sustainable? So, Indoor farming, you buy a huge warehouse somewhere, let's say in Croydon, um, nice and close to a big economic centre. You grow crops artificially using a lot of electricity, um, but you get that crop, um, whether it's a leafy green or, you know, some technologies are going as far as tomatoes, cucumbers, you know, big, high value vegetables. You get them onto supermarket shelves 24 hours after they were harvested in the middle of winter rather than flying them in from Peru. Now, is that more sustainable or is that less sustainable? And is a consumer willing to pay more or less for that um, based on the fact that it was grown locally and the food miles are really low? I think these are really existential questions that no one really knows the answer to yet. And it's a huge investment for a company to get into uh, without having any real great proof that it's going to be a successful way of going. Yeah, is it, 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 the indoor farming thing is a is a a whole topic in it, in its own right, and it it's it is fascinating to see how that how that is evolving because, as you say, you know you're you're not using solar energy at all for that. You know, the, you grow crops in the field, and it will get all that solar energy for free, and it it helps them to grow, and you know you're you're arguably you know, you're just using electricity to to try and mimic that. Well, I mean. Electricity is more and more solar electricity, you know, whether, whether it's solar or wind, you know, which is solar by a slightly different route of physics. It's, yeah, we're, we're, we're accessing more and more renewable sources here in the UK. And, and as that continues, that's, that can only be good for, for high intensity challenges like indoor farming. Yeah, that, that, and that is entirely true, except, of course, it's not as efficient course you know it's not a hundred percent conversion from solar to electricity or, or whatever the the renewable source is it's not a hundred percent photosynthesis into sugar either no but that's common no matter how the the, the sunlight the light is generated true true um the and if, especially when you bear in mind that actually most of the electric, electricity cost of an indoor farm is keeping it cool because of all the pumps that you're running and all the the lights that are creating you know creating for heat as, as a byproduct yeah which is hugely interesting because you know those are problems that data centers <laughs> have have trouble with constantly and you know you look at the work amazon you look at the work microsoft do to power their data centers and i'd be interested to see how far the current indoor farming tech has pushed into solving those challenges rather than the more fundamental challenges they have around nutrient and fluid control and lighting and, and those sorts of things yeah, that's very true. Like, but, but, but there are real positives of the indoor farming, which is some of which you've alluded to, but there are others where, because you are controlling the environment so, so well, you can actually encourage different traits, different, encourage different you know, uh, sort of vitamins. Or, you know, we talk about you know, effectively doping the, the, the feed water with, with minerals so you get an iron-rich vegetable or whatever, you know, whatever is needed, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're starting to move into sort of the world of biofortification there, where you're looking at can can we as as uh, food producers, as farmers, as as the supply chain provide a higher value um, end product by changing the way that we do the growing in the first place? Um, and I think that is you know to go back to some of these existential problems facing the whole world, delivering higher nutrition value from 
the same mass, the same uh, volume of product is is one incredibly important thing that we need to be focusing on. Um, so whether it's growing or breeding, rather, um, traits of wheat and corn so they have higher protein content um, or absorb minerals faster or uh, have drought resistance um, so that you just get higher yields out of them. Um, pushing that into the supply chain, you know, in theory that allows the farmer to have um, a higher value product, but it also allows, you know, your PepsiCo's, your Mondelez's, your you know the big snack food providers to start turning a a product like um, potato crisps into something that actually has nutritional benefits, as well as delivering you that salty, crunchy um, thing that you as a consumer are actually really buying it for. Um, I, I think I'd be hugely interested to see how the next ten years of biofortification plays out, because we might find that the things that we buy as a guilty pleasure stop being so guilty. Of course, for a business to invest in something like an indoor farm on the outskirts of Croydon, they will need to make sure the investment stacks up, just as well as the carbon footprint of it stacks up too. They need their customers to come with them on their journey, to be really excited about what's possible, and be willing to pay a bit more for sustainable quality food to get a reasonable return on that investment. Both Simon and Alan had mentioned it a few times already that consumers are increasingly interested in sustainability. But I put it to them both. Do consumers really care about this stuff? Here's Alan. I, I think they, I think some of them do. I think there's a, it, it does come up to a, there's definitely a class divide on this. There's definitely a social divide and, and there's a geographical divide, you know, I think this is very much a, a problem for the for the developed world rather than than the rest of the world. Mm. Um, but I think that awareness is increasing. I think you know, the next generation, so my kids, that you know, this is what they talk about. This is what they're they're really interested in. They're not they're not currently the buyers. You know, they're just they're they're teenagers and they just get get what they're given type thing. But increasingly, I think there is that, that will change. There, there is there is a general societal change to become more sustainable and more aware at least make you know it's there's a there's a, it's an awareness thing it's it's no it's not doing it blindly it's doing it making a conscious decision yes I'm consciously buying the cheapest thing because I can't afford to do that but and I know that I could do better but I can't afford to yeah I think that's that's what it always comes down to right if you ask somebody abstractly would you prefer to buy organic would you prefer to buy local produce? I think everyone knows enough about the sustainability side of things now that they'd say, yes, of course I do. I'd, I'd love to do that. But how much added cost can a consumer uh, cope with to, to deliver against that is, is fundamentally what it comes down to. So, you know, the difference between uh, a, a local avocado and a, one that's imported Bearing in mind we don't have great growing conditions for avocados here in the UK. I mean, it would be an astronomical cost difference. Um, alternatively, there are some things which are easier to grow um, more sustainably. You know, I think the, the free-range hens over the last 10, 15 years has been a, a huge um, success story that actually I, I, you struggle to find... Um, less ethically sourced um, eggs in, in supermarkets now because there's almost no demand there because there's almost no cost differential between the two um, methods of growing them. The challenge though of course is that's there's a when you when you're in, if you're, when you're in a supermarket if you're walking down the, the fresh veg aisle or you're walking down the the, the eggs aisle then maybe there's a con there's a you know, there's a decision to be made but actually for the big food producing companies the, the ones that do a lot of the food processing it's it's harder and it's only it's only in recent years that you see mayonnaise being more and more branded as being made from free-range eggs and a lot of it isn't yeah and i mean some of that comes down to fundamental difficulties of, of doing things on mass if you're in charge of supply at a you know a, a, a 
take mayonnaise, you, if you're in charge of supply at Unilever on Hellman's and you need to source 100,000 eggs next month, if that supply just doesn't exist locally, if that supply doesn't exist organically or free range, then you know how do you cope with that? Or alternatively, how do you have a production line which you can clean down and completely flip over from um, being free range into non-free range um, on a batch by batch basis? And how do you maintain your um, records so that you can prove if a consumer really needed to go into it or if a regulator more, more normally wanted to go into it, that you could prove that all of the eggs that went into batch A that got labelled as free range, got labelled as organic, are truly like that. I mean, that's a huge burden of proof and evidence that these companies are having to take on. And and potentially that data might not always exist in the way it needs to in the supply chain. Yeah, but I think that's where the where work needs to be done in providing that traceability, in providing that reassurance that that from you know from a consumer's perspective and from the the food producer's perspective, you know, they, from a food from the, from a manufacturer's point of view, from as you say, from a, a Unilever or craft perspective, knowing that the food is has come from the right source helps you enormously in terms of hygiene in terms of under you know quantifying the risk of sourcing ingredients from from strange places around the world that is really important and it's it's been increasingly becoming managed but there's i think there's still quite a long way to go and i think that's where work needs to be done yeah i mean i was at um i was at a conference a couple of years ago and um you know some of these topics are being talked about and and there are people there saying, you know, the solution here is that every egg in the world, every avocado in the world needs to be tagged and traced from start to finish. And that, from an abstract technology perspective, you know, someone sitting in a in a wonderful office in London sounds like a really good idea. You know, I'd love to know where every avocado that's on the shelf in Sainsbury's has, has ultimately come from, who grew them, when they were planted as a tree, you know, it would help me maybe start making nutritional decisions. It would help me start making um, ethical decisions about what I'm doing. But ultimately, somebody has to process that in the first place. Someone has to go out and and somehow capture that data. And if that farmer in the first place doesn't get any reward, then it's just a non-starter. You know, if it takes me now another 10 seconds per harvesting operation, um, it just becomes a, a, an even bigger burden on, on the people who are least able to afford those burdens. But are we not saying that tracking and tracing, and I know we're a bit sick of that term at the moment, what with the pandemic, but are we not saying that that monitoring of, of ingredients is fundamental to actually initiating change here? I know it's a tough ask, but isn't that going to be fundamental to this? I think, I think it is fundamental. I just think that the burden is being placed in a way that is is unsustainable if if we're asking the people in the primary end of the of the spectrum you know who who let's face it are probably being paid low wages you know there's a lot of farmers in the UK who ultimately earn for themselves less than minimum wage because they just the amount of hours they put in mm. if we're asking them to do even more just to enter the market and be able to sell their product then we're not understanding their needs very well. And so I think, you know, as, as technology providers and as people with the purchasing power of the big multinational food manufacturers need to be delivering, you know, automation and technology solutions back upwards into the supply chain in order to be enabling this. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that the, I'm not going to take an, you know, the farmer's view on this. I, I can completely endorse that. That's, it is, it's hard enough as it is. And it, they, I think the farmers can see the benefit because then they can, the, actually the, the value of their crop increases if they do it right. Um, but making the, the, whatever, whatever's introduced has to be painless to, to that individual. And it, it may, maybe, maybe it comes more down to risk management rather than actual 100% verification of the entire chain. It's knowing where the, where the problems are and focusing on the problem areas. Mm. I know I'm conscious that we're talking very generically. I mean, obviously, different crops and different food stuff to you know operate in different ways. 
which are the kind of areas we're really talking about here that we can really benefit from some of these things? I think in the short term, there's probably two areas. Um, the first being the large row crops that have huge purchasing power behind them. Mm-hmm. So your, your corn, uh, your wheat, um, anything of, of the scale of that sort. And then anything which commands a real high value and is probably done, probably harvested really labor intensely. Yeah. Um, so cocoa, coffee, tea, anything that we, we intuitively feel has um, a real uh, power behind it and, and, and inspires people to spend money on. If you can solve the technology challenges in those two areas, I think um, you can start then transferring that technology into other areas of the world. Okay, so we'd spent a lot of time looking at the difficult challenges and the many considerations facing today's food companies. But I was keen to get on to exploring the exciting stuff, the solutions, the technologies, the science that is going to unlock a number of these problems, particularly in the sectors that Simon just noted. He mentioned it briefly earlier, but crop breeding is one of the more interesting and really important innovations that could help to alleviate some of the pressures that we've been talking about. I asked Simon to elaborate and walk us through how crop breeding techniques actually work. There's a whole world of, let's call them traditional crop breeding techniques. Um, And I think that's probably where the focus remains. Um, And I say that because the other part of crop breeding is genetic modification, um, new techniques based on things like CRISPR, Cas9, and, and, and all of these things you might hear about in the news a lot. Now, the reality is those aren't coming to the EU. They're probably not going into America that that soon. Um, Why is that? There's just a, a big consumer pushback against it. There's a lot of... People are nervous about this stuff, aren't they? Yeah. It, it's, and, and I think it, people are right to be nervous about anything that they don't understand. Uh, and so there is, a, there is an amount of education that needs to go out there. Um, I, I don't at all believe that these technologies are inherently risky. But, of course they can lead to some not very nice business practices um, of which uh, I'm I'm sure people will be aware of some of the big challenges around combining pesticide solutions with um, the crop seed itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, long and short of it is I I don't particularly see those impacting EU or North American markets in, in, in the next five to 10 years. So I think the focus will remain on more traditional plant breeding techniques. And ultimately what you're doing there is growing lots and lots of different um, crops of the same crop or different lines of the same crop and selectively deciding which ones have the best chance of meeting your needs. So you know, there, there are huge um, initiatives run by the, the big... Um, crop seed developers in the world but um you know sometimes they are really focused on those blockbuster products the ones that you know go for multi-billion tons annually um and so the problem you might face as a as a food producer is if you need something where you know maybe you're the person in the world who uses the most of that crop you know maybe you're uh, growing potatoes um you know, for oven chips or for potato crisps, or maybe you need something that's really specific um, and you can't get access to people at Monsanto, people at Bayer or or Syngenta to do the breeding for you. As a food producer, do you have the time and energy and resources to to do that breeding? Um, Select the right crop, grow them up, uh, do some phenotyping to decide whether or not they've actually succeeded in you know, having some drought resistance or having a higher iron content or whatever you were trying to breed for. Um, and then slowly and slowly grow through the process of making that the only thing that you grow. And then does it actually end up screwing up your factory line <laughs> six months later when you know, some starch content has gone out of whack and something is broken because of that? It's a hugely complex field. And Alan, coming to your world of 
precision agriculture. Talk to us about that, because this is about using sort of sensor technology, isn't it? About what crops to, to spray, when and how. Talk us through that a bit more. Uh, okay, okay. So, yeah, a bit of a diversification away from the, the breeding side. So, it's, so, I guess you make the assumption that the breeding's done, you're now growing the crop in the field, and comes back to that sustainability perspective. It's how do I know what to spray and where should I spray it? So it's that, it's that understanding of... Down at the, at the individual plant level, what what, I sh- what 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 does that plant need to grow? Does it need more water? Does it need more fertilizer? Does it need does that that weed next to it is, is causing pressure? Do I need to spray herbicide? So, precision agriculture is all about figuring out that 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 puzzle, figuring out how to precisely give each plant what it needs. Um, you know, typically go back to the, to the row crops that, that Simon talked about, like corn and, and, and so on. What you would do would be you, you treat the entire field in the same way. Mm. And that's the cheapest solution, um, but of course, from a from an environmental perspective, it's not it's not the best. It's not you, you know you could be over spraying in a lot of the field. You could be under spraying in other in other areas. So, on average, you get the right thing, but you could do a lot better. And and of course, you're spraying probably too much chemistry mm. and and there's regulatory pressure and there's environmental pressure and customers you know, want, want to see less of these chemistries reused on their on their foods so what do they do about it well there are there are there's a, there's a whole burgeoning field growing which is as you say called you know precision agriculture um and there are startups exploiting this startups creating robotic solutions or automated solutions or or just plain smarter machines than, than what the farmer has available to him at the moment and and that's that's really interesting you know there's literally robots going through the field are they the, the, the ultimate ambition is robots going through the field i think there are there are simpler solutions out there at the moment things that are pulled by a, a tractor and the tractor's driven by a human so there's still a human involved but the the implement is smarter the implement no longer you know it actually understands where it is you know, uses GPS and it, it can understand where where in the field it is, pretty much down to the you know, to to centimeter precision. So actually, can t- almost tag every plant and know what it needs. But it's about sensing, it's about monitoring, it's about so what's, what's it measuring? Size? It, it, uh, yeah, good, really good question. Um, could be measuring a whole heap of different things. Size size is is clearly one one part of it. It's to say. How well is this plant going, perhaps, yeah. compared to the, its neighbour? But then it's understanding why is that happening. Mm. So it's, it, could, it could be looking at moisture content in the soil. It could be looking at nitrogen content in the soil. Mm. It could be looking at how the proximity of weeds next to it. So there's lots of things it could be doing. Colour of the leaves. Colour of the leaves, yeah, exactly. So, And, of course, some of that, that information can come from a satellite or from a drone. Mm. The most precision, most precise ones tend to be dragged on the back of a tractor because you're right there above the crop yeah so are we at the very early stages of this being used widely is there any evidence to say it works i mean what, where are we at with it we're there's evidence that it works there are there are there are startups that, that have been acquired by the huge companies yeah. have, one example that springs to mind is, is blue river technologies california startup bought bought for several hundred million dollars by John Deere. Right. So, from a from a startup perspective, very successful. The from a from a farmer's perspective, probably not that successful in that how many of these machines are actually deployed. You don't you don't see these things deployed to the field, and that's largely because actually it's much harder than than perhaps people anticipate it being. Um, and so, I, I see it happening over the next sort of five to ten years. These these machines starting to come out. Um, but there's actually, even if the technology becomes mature enough, mm. the question then comes back to the farmer: Do I see enough benefit to to warrant the cost of these machines, and can I afford it? And can I, if it goes wrong, how do I fix this thing? Mm. This is, you know, an order of magnitude more complicated than the machines I'm used to using. And and so I think what what will happen is you will end up there'll be a new tier of service companies that that run these machines that are technologically advanced and they offer they offer a service to the farmer so the farmer buys a weed free hectare rather than a bucket of herbicide yeah 
So it's a, it's a business model change that will happen. But I think that that's the sort of extreme technology end of, of precision agriculture. I think um, there's huge value in, in lower tech solutions that are still, you know, maybe more precise or more, uh, intu- um, more smart than what we do today sometimes, you know. Some of our clients are just screaming out for, for information. They just need to know what's happening. And if you're really heavily invested in a specific crop and, you know, your business lives or dies by the harvest that year, either either you get enough or you don't. And if you don't, you suddenly have to either go short or you have to have technology solutions or product solutions ready to fill that gap because ultimately you've got a contract with Sainsbury's to put X number of things on their shelves. So, you know, Alan mentioned slightly less precise versions of, of crop sensing that might be flown by drones or, or whatever it might be. Just getting early data and using that to make better predictions of what's going on in the world is, is just so valuable not just to the farmer, because the farmer can use that information to make better decisions. You know, should they be actively going out and doing something tomorrow because of what they've learned today? But that longer perspective cascades up through the supply chain and adds value to everybody who's involved. And I think that's maybe some of the stuff that is kind of missing from precision agriculture right now is really tying those data points that are being learned on the ground in a very specific location to a more global perspective of what's going on and how the whole market will have to react to varying conditions. And obviously, as we go through climate change and we see big weather events that can take out a whole, you know, a whole state of America might lose a crop of of a specific product um, because of a hurricane coming through unexpectedly or at the wrong time or, you know, a drought in in, uh, Germany or something like that. you know, I, I think the power of data is, is really where precision agriculture adds its value. And ultimately it comes back to what you said earlier about who pays for this stuff. And often sustainability challenges are not necessarily technological challenges, they're economic ones, and that's what it comes down to, isn't it? I think it's true. Pays for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly at some point the customer has to pay for it. So looking for solutions where something is both sustainable and increases productivity is you know, the holy grail. You know, you could argue that some of those precision agriculture initiatives help with that because ultimately if I put less chemicals out there in the field, I'm spending less on chemistry. Um, now, whether or not that ends up being true, as Alan has gone into, I guess, probably on the servitization um, podcast and, and, and delved into it in a lot more detail on that, the economics there um, remains to be seen. I think the other aspect of it is is the regulatory side. You know, there is now the governmental pressure behind climate change, behind sustainability issues, that if companies aren't making steps towards this now, they're going to find them their whole supply chain disrupted unexpectedly in, in you know two, three years' time. Something will just come down the passage from the EU, from the World Trade Organization, whoever decides to change a standard and... Companies may find they lose access to core markets if they aren't making steps today. Yeah. I think that regulatory pressure is is, is key, mm. it, it, and that's why a lot of companies spend so much money lobbying and mm-hmm. and, and pushing for for things. But governments are more savvy than that. I do, I hope. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to be a a multinational company and you know, put your big sustainability goals up on a website and crow about them and go to scientific conferences and claim all of the things that some of these people are claiming, and then also in the back channel be pressuring against the regulatory change. I personal opinion, I think the 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 company that wins the next ten years is the one that goes all in on sustainability and says, actually, you know, we can't afford not to be changing ourselves now, even if there isn't the regulatory pressure. You know, consumers will not accept a uh, bad version of a product which is bad for the environment in the next 10 years. It just won't happen. Again, I think that's true in the developed world. I question whether it, it will happen as much in the developing world, which is, of course, where the majority of the world's population sits. Mm. 
where a lot of the food is being sold into. But there's, yeah, you said there's obviously different challenges and different solutions as you start looking towards that part of the world. So, you know, we said before that biofortification by plant breeding in the EU is tricky because you can't access the CRISPR, you can't access these um, genetic uh, engineering techniques. But we're starting to see that not be the case in um, in some developing world countries. Um, so, you know, golden rice being the, the big show blockbuster example recently being approved. And, you know, if, if there are solutions out there where malnutrition can be solved, then I think malnutrition is a much bigger challenge than, you know, making sure a potato crisp is grown sustainably. Let's hope Simon is right that food companies that throw everything at sustainability will win the day. I'm sure you agree, the longer the conversation continued, the more you realise just how many challenges remain, regardless of the amazing technological solutions that are being made available. I wanted to wrap up our conversation on what I hoped might be a positive and hopeful note by asking Simon Allen what types of projects get the most excited and whether when it comes to fixing our food system, it will all be all right in the end. We want to feel like we are making a genuine difference. Um, and, and so that means that however we get involved in projects, we want to feel like it is about sustainability. You know, there are, there are some really interesting technical challenges to solve on a pure productivity basis. Can I make the same product for cheaper? But, you know, to get us really excited, it's got to be that sort of core technology that delivers value to, you know, the whole of society. Um, now, if we can also do that in a way that helps our clients <laughs> with their economics, that's, uh, you know, that's an even bigger win. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, what what I, I mean, what I find fascinating about working here is is that ability that we have to. We're you know we're Sagentia is very much technology driven, but other parts of the group have that that economic perspective, you know, that market commercialization perspective, and that regulatory perspective. And actually, the most exciting projects that we worked on pull on all of those narratives together, so you have a consistent commercial strategy technology strategy and regulatory strategy and it's only by having all of them lined up that you get, get to success and i think that's that i mean that, that they're the things that really excite me where it's not just the geeky stuff that i love it's it's actually putting other bits into that that, that, that problem statement and that solution that we build i think the other thing we really like doing is is taking our clients out of their comfort zone so the, the reason why you know what we're calling farm to fork is is so interesting is because we're we're you know taking these uh, R and D people from food multinationals who spend their life in a development kitchen or a um, a laboratory and asking them to put wellies on and come out in a big field and, and see um, how it is really being made in the first place and how can we make that better in order to make other things better. Um, there's nothing more satisfying than really taking someone out of their comfort zone in a way that's productive for them. We started our conversation by talking about the huge task ahead in food and you know systemic challenges which are not easy to solve and you know we've barely scratched the surface but let me wrap up by asking you are you hopeful I mean middle of the century we're looking at 9 10 billion people on this planet can we do it can we feed everybody I think so I think, you know, there's, there's a, if you go back to Malthus, you know, it was, there was always that question, we, there'll be a, a, a maximum population. But I think it comes back to what the first thing you opened with, you know, parts of the world are hungry, parts of the world are, are fat. And it's, it's about distribution. I think that farming efficiency is improving. But if we can get the right food to the right people, then that's, that's the way that, that people will, you know, world will survive the world the world's population will work, will sustain at that at that level there isn't there's enough land there's enough capability it's just are we delivering the right things to the right people i think we probably will but i think it's going to be really tricky i think it's not it's not something that anyone can solve by themselves you know there's a big movement towards people going vegetarian and vegan because 
it's perceived that that allows them to free up land use that is currently un, you know, quote unquote unproductively being used for for cattle rearing for higher um, value or higher energy value crop breeding you know a couple of hundred thousand people changing their lifestyle like that isn't going to make a dent in the challenge that we need and so it really does need the food multinationals uh, supermarkets the governmental agencies to have a really coordinated strategy and say you know actually we do need to find a way of of moving people off beef and um, into more vegetables and some of that's going to come through alternative protein sources and plant-based burgers and some of that's going to come through changing the economics of going to a supermarket and buying beef and changing the subsidies that we give to farmers for growing different types of um, crops um, but really none of that's going to work unless the consumers are bought in so as product developers we still have to make sure that what we're doing is really tasty and cheap enough that people can afford it and um, has a long enough shelf life that it's not going to waste. I mean, we haven't even touched on food waste during this talk, but you know, that's the other flip side of it. We waste way too much of our food. I've forgotten all about the food waste angle. You know, that's, that, <laughs> that's the next podcast. That is the next podcast. Yeah, maybe, maybe it needs to be because it is so critical. It is, you know, it does come back to we waste so much damn food. So that's it for this episode. I hope you found our conversation useful and insightful. And yes, we didn't even get around to talking about the whole food waste thing. But rest assured, there are plenty of good examples of innovation in what is ultimately the oldest industry in the world, growing food. As you heard there, Alan and Simon's teams are really excited to be working with food and drinks businesses to challenge their thinking and find new ways of doing things better, smarter, and of course, more sustainably. If you want to find out how the guys can help you with your challenges, be sure to get in touch with the Sagentia team today. Just head over to sagentia.com. Anyway, that's it from us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was produced by 37 and was presented, written, and researched by me, Tom Idle. The editor and story producer was James White and the audio editing was done by Thomas Parker. A special thank you to the team at Sagentia, to Anna Perkins, to Simon and Alan that you just heard in the show and to everybody else that helped out behind the scenes or supported from afar.